Welcome friends and colleagues. Today we have an opportunity to discuss a very wonderful and a very obscure second verse of Genesis. It will give us an opportunity to test out the maxim of what it tells, not what it says, but it will not be possible to finish all that I've selected to say about this verse in one session. So we'll continue into the second session, but what I want to do today is simply to try to understand what is being described and try to get a picture of it in front of our eyes. And mysterious it is. So there will be three topics and three tangents in today's podcast and several others which we will discuss next time. Today I want to discuss what did the earth look like at the point of the second verse? What is darkness? What is the Spirit of God? There will be three tangents today. One is on that wonderful Greek word, omanomatopoeia, which means the word sounds like what it means. Sometimes I'll use the term alliteration borrowed from poetry for that. Uh, And uh, while these are not identical concepts, they're close enough for our purposes of uh, trying to understand the meaning and what the sound of the words adds to the meaning contained within them. There'll be tangent on darkness and on abyss. The verse says that the earth was empty and shapeless and darkness was over the face of the abyss and the spirit of Elohim fluttered over the waters, over the face of the waters. There are many ways to translate this verse. For the next podcast, I want to focus on the role of Near Eastern parallels to the creation story, <coughs> explore further the meaning of the word ruach. Is it spirit? Is it wind? Or does it even mean air? I want to understand better what the spirit of God is. And we'll also talk about literal and non-literal readings of Genesis and the related subject of reconciling the biblical account and the scientific account of the beginnings. And finally, is God masculine? So let's start with our today's discussion. To briefly review, we have uh, discussed that the first verse is deliberately ambiguous, that it can be read as creation out of nothing, as well as formation of pre-existing matter. And that the purpose of the second verse, as evidenced by how the first three sentences would read, 
if you remove the second verse, uh, is to focus us on God being present within the world, which is a very important religious value. So key to our understanding today will be the words of empty and shapeless. I'll say them in Hebrew. Tohu uvohu. Clearly there's an alliteration here. And, it's been pointed out by Kasuta and others, Tohu is very similar to the word abyss. Tohum. Tohum. Uh, and that's certainly, uh, surely is on purpose. Uh, now, Tahom, the abyss, is where the waters are, as you see in Genesis 7, verse 11, when the waters of the abyss opened and water came for, the, for Noah's flood. So, I think the best way to do this is to describe the players in this verse. And there are really three phrases in the verse. And um, <coughs> they are the earth and the emptiness, the darkness and the spirit of God. Now, the verse starts with an interesting grammatical construction. In Hebrew, v'ha'oret ha'isah, and the land was. By putting the actor here, the land, first indicates that um, the action is perfect. Perfect, from Latin perfecti, completed, means that uh, an action took place in the past, from beginning to the end, and it was completed. There are two ways to understand and the earth was barren and empty or whichever way you translate it. One is prior to the spirit of God it was, but at the time of the second verse it no longer was. That would be consistent with the perfect reading, perfect in in the linguistic sense of an action that started and completed. The being unshaped and unformed, already started and completed at the time where we're standing reading the second verse. There are, in general, two ways in Hebrew, or I should say in the Holy Tongue, in Biblical Hebrew, <coughs> to form the past. There is the perfect past, which is the only one that really survived in modern Hebrew. And there is a form in which you take the future tense, add a conjunction vav, put a shvai in the second letter of the word, and that is called a converting vav, vav hahifuch, and it changes the future into the past. There are other shades of meaning to it. Uh, it, it is an imperfect action, but if there is a perfect past in the same verse uh, or in an adjoining verse, it means the second action that happened in the past. For example, in Genesis 4.1, it says, And Adam knew 
Eva, his wife, and she conceived. Rashi there points out that this happened prior to their expulsion from uh, Gan Eden, from, from Eden, because that story is written in the second kind of past, the one that converts the future into the past, and this one is in a simple perfect past. Therefore, that action of knowing his wife happened already in Eden, even though the story of expulsion has already been told and preceded this. And you find other many examples such as this. So, the construction we have and the land was, it does seem to suggest that the incompleteness, the emptiness, the shapelessness, the unformedness has now ended. There are other ways to read this, of course. Kasuta has a discussion of this. Now, that's our, our player number one. The second one is a player of tohu vohu, tohu vohu, emptiness. Uh, it is a pair that's found in other places, really twice uh, in Jeremiah 4.23, I looked at the earth and it was tohu uvohu. It's found in Isaiah 34.11, and he should stretch over it the line of tohu and the plummet of vohu. You see, by the way, in that verse that tohu uvohu is something that could be defined. It's associated with the line, it's associated with the plummet. So it is not as completely shapeless and empty as one might think. Some of the philosophical commentators associate this term with uh, a completely uh, unshaped uh, matter. Um, uh, The matter before any shape uh, or form uh, was possible. Uh, He uli in Greek... uh, uh, thought or, or, or hilus, and um, the spirit of God is the shape and the form which now applies. Uh, but with this analysis, it would seem that it is not completely shapeless, since Isaiah describes it as something that has could be a line or could be a plummet. The other very interesting thing about this term tohu uvohu is the onomatopoeia of it, just the sound. Now, onomatopoeia is a very common feature of Biblical Hebrew. I have uh, a little book reprinted by the Makits in Yerdamim, Awakening the Sleepers Society, which was a group of enlighteners, a maskilim, who reprinted various biblical-related uh, uh, works from the past. And this one was some Englishman's uh, PhD dissertation. has a lot of valuable information. Uh, fr- from it, I learned how frequently you find this in Scripture. From uh, another source, I learned that the sounds of the words add a great deal of meaning 
to the actual meaning. This is something that's foreign to the European languages. The sounds are not usually connected to the meaning. You do find exceptions such as braying of horses, um, buzzing of a bee, but ne not nearly to the same extent as in Hebrew. The source is the work of Victoria Hanna, H-A-N-N-A, who grew up in a rabbinic Sephardic home in Israel, but as an artist explores the sounds of Hebrew words. She declaims them. It's not as much singing as declamation, but in a way that brings out the aspect of sound related to the meaning. You can find her on the internet and YouTube. <clears throat> as an illustration, I'll just bring two verses. I'll declaim them as well. The first one is in Proverbs 31.26. It speaks of the woman of valor and how she opens her mouth. Her mouth she opened in wisdom. The word open in English has a little bit of the same shading. Open. You're opening. You have a, a, a vowel and which is being held back by a plosive sound. P, and then it breaks and it goes out. The breath goes out. Open. But look how it sounds in Hebrew. Well, there are three words. Pia means mouth. Poscha means opened. Bechochma is with wisdom. But here's how it sounds. Notice the air struggling to escape. Uh, there is a resistance, a closure that it has to overcome, and then it goes. Pia, poscha, bechochma. Her mouth she opened in wisdom. Or look at the first verse in the Song of Songs. This is really my favorite. Um, I haven't seen this written anywhere, but it just seems so obvious. Uh, the Song of Songs, which is to Solomon. Notice how the sound and the air are slowly coming out. Shir hashirim asher Lishlomo. There's a lot of alliteration here with the sh, sh sound, which is, of course, uh, uh, air partially, uh, breath partially being able to come in, and the R sound, which also holds the air back but does not completely prevent it. This in itself uh, forewarns us and foreshadows that love is difficult, that love has many impediments and obstacles, and that you need to be able to push through them to give it expression. Shir hashirim asher lishlomo. Amazing. Now, the third player is this abyss. Well, actually, it's part of the second player. Uh, it's related to tohu bohu. Tohu tehom. Now, we know from Jonah 2.6, that uh, the home is a large collection of water. Jonah prays that 
water engulfed me, abyss, the home, surrounded me. And uh, Saadia Gaon, in his commentary, makes this point that abyss is some space which is covered by water. And, and as we see, it contains water too. A word about Saadia, he was uh, the first translator, first Jewish translator, aside from the Aramaic translations. Uh, he translated the Hebrew Bible into Arabic. It was the 10th century, and he was one of the most uh, amazing scholars of that time. We'll quote him again in a minute. The next player is darkness, Choshech. The questions about this darkness that's, uh, that was uh, over the face of the abyss is kind of like that Zen koan. If a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? If there's no one to hear it, is there a sound? If there's no light, can there be darkness? Light is created in the following verse. Next one. So, can there be darkness before there is light? If no man saw it, was it really darkness? So, what, what is this darkness? Uh, one way to understand it is that the darkness is not simply the opposite of the light, as we in our optimistic modern times believe, but that darkness has its own existence. There is a hint of malevolence in this darkness, although it's not explicit. Now, the question of whether darkness really exists, or whether it's simply an absence of light, has been discussed since uh, Plotinus, uh, who discusses it in the eighth tractate of his first Ennead. Plotinus was a Neoplatonic philosopher. And I would recommend for those who are interested in exploring more to, to read the Wikipedia article Absence of Good, Privatia Boni. But among the Jewish commentators, the ones that are, are generally cited is the Nachmanides commentary to Exodus 10.23. This is the darkness that uh, engulfed uh, Egypt during Exodus. And um, he quotes, I believe, from Ibn Ezra, that there are places where the darkness is so thick that it puts out the light. That's a proof that darkness is its own independent uh, entity. Ibn Ezra, if I recall correctly, talks about deep caves and places beyond the known border of the ocean as the sailors have testified. We would say now that they're probably talking about where there's no oxygen or very heavy fog. Now, Aquinas, in his Summa, brings the proof that darkness is simply an absence of light. And the proof is from shadows. You can experimentally induce darkness by slowly covering the light. And if the proportionality of darkness depends on how much light you block, it must be that 
all it is is absence of light. From here, though, it would seem that darkness is its own entity, and also from Isaiah 45.7, where it says, He forms light and creates darkness, makes peace and creates evil. The association of darkness and evil is, of course, very, very basic and very, very deep. And it is not uh, a topic for today. But I would point out that if this hint of malevolence is truly present there, then you understand why there is a need for the third part of the verse, and the Spirit of God hovered over the water. Let's take a step back. There are three parts to the sentence. One is the earth is shapeless and empty. And second, there was darkness over the face of the abyss. And three, the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the water. We can use the same technique we used before. What would happen if you removed one phrase then another, then another. See how the meaning changes. I'll let you go through this exercise, but I would point out that theoretically you could have reversed the second and the third parts. You could say, and the earth was formless and shapeless, and the Spirit of God hovered over the water, and there was darkness on the face of the abyss. But the way it's arranged here, first of all, you need it foreshadows the, the existence of the, of the uh, darkness and the Spirit of God foreshadow creation of light. Creation of light is done by God uh, and creation of light overcomes the darkness. So the, the biblical text is leading us from one sentence to another so that we can clearly understand and accept uh, the procession of the narrative. But there is also, in a deeper sense, a hint. There is darkness. Darkness is associated with evil. The earth is shapeless, but do not lose hope. Even in that deep darkness, the spirit of the Lord is hovering, and very, very soon we shall see light. This is uh, an important theological and spiritual message, as well as it being uh, a, a way, as we said, what it tells, not what it says, of leading us subliminally into certain conclusions about the world, about the religion of God, and about spirituality. Now to the Spirit of God. As I said, it's a big topic. It uh, has some relation to the nature of God. We'll speak about what it means at next time. But for now, I would just point out some exegetical issues. Is it the Spirit of God or is it the wind of God? Wind versus Spirit will be discussed next time. But if you, if, then you also have to understand that wind and air are intimately related. So it may be that there was already air in existence as well. Or maybe it is a way to lead us to the concept of spiritual. 
something that we can occasionally perceive that's evanescent, that kind of breathes at us and then is gone. For right now, I just want to explore its meaning wind. The purpose of the wind would be to either separate the upper waters and the lower waters, as uh, we find uh, a, a strong wind separating the, red, the waters of the Red Sea, or it may be to dry the waters, as by Noah, and God passed a wind over the over the uh, the situation. That's, I'm, I'm paraphrasing the verse now, uh, and the waters quieted. Now, is the wind? Is this wind uh, God's wind? So, if you explain it as spirit of God, that makes sense. If you explain it as wind, well, what does that have to do with God? It's a natural phenomenon. So going back to Saadi Agoan, he makes an interesting point that there were winds blowing from everywhere. Another commentators point out that, at least in Israel, uh, there are four winds. Each one of it blows continuously or repetitively during a particular season of the year. Because things were disorganized, all four winds were blowing at the same time, all from different directions. Another way to understand Saadia is that since there was no right and left up and down at that point, just all the waters were covering all as far as your eye can see, uh, whether on your side or up or down. So um, the wind was always blow blowing on the face of the waters. The word mirahephes, hovering, is also interesting. <coughs> uh, we'll leave the discussion of that for next time. So for a quick summary, and I apologize if, if the talk seemed a little bit unfocused, but there were, these were the things that had to be brought up before we can even begin to understand what it tells. We have a verse of three parts. The point of the verse seems to be to tell us that God is here, even in the complete darkness, that he will bring the light, uh, that he is in, within the material world, which you would not understand if this verse wasn't there. It is to foreshadow the next creative step, which is the creation of light. The, we spoke about onomatopoeia or alliteration playing an important role in understanding uh, one of the plays here. So who, 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 the procession of breath, that describes the creative process. We talked a little bit about the identity of the Spirit of God, mostly about its translation as the wind of God. Uh, and what does it have to do with God? I need to add that. forgot to mention that. So in Hebrew, very often, God's name is added to indicate that something is very large or very impressive. Here's a few examples. Genesis 38. The intertwining of God I intertwined. One sister says to another, I prayed and I was granted a child. 
Songs of Songs 8-6. <clears throat> For hard is love, goes on to say, like the flame of God. There are no flames there, and it's an internal uh, experience uh, that love is, but it means very large flame. And of course, Jonah and Nineveh was a great city to the Lord. Uh, the Lord had nothing to do with it. They were sinners at that moment. It means a very, very large city. And Nineveh was, in truth, a very large city. Geographical exploration uh, shows that the city wall encompassed uh, a space nine times greater than Rome and its greatest expanse. It was a very large city, an unprecedented and unparalleled city to the Lord. So thank you for listening. Uh, I think we understand the verse much better. Uh, we can go uh, a little bit deeper at next podcast. Thank you for listening. And may you have only the blessings.